There we are. All right, how you doing? All right. Uh, so are we good to get started then? Or right, hold on. All right, I think we're good to go. Uh, so do you want to just kind of give us like an introduction to yourself, kind of like your background, stuff like that? Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Dustin Thompson. I'm the volunteer and community outreach coordinator for the Delaware Sierra Club. Uh, so I'm one of the, there's only two staff actually at the Sierra Club uh, and the at the Delaware chapter. Um, we're a pretty, pretty small chapter. Um, so there's the executive director who uh, handles a lot of the fundraising and <clears throat> um, more of the management side of things. Um, and does some policies specifically around land use. And then uh, I do a lot of the outreach and coalition building um, and organizing education on policy issues and primarily focus around uh, climate change, <clears throat> climate change, conservation and energy. Uh, so what I, I know my first question, uh, this is like a hot topic right now. Uh, it's relating to natural gas. Uh, so what's what's kind of the consensus in the climate and energy universe on what uh, natural gas is, like clean, renewable, stuff like that? Yeah, so I mean, Sierra Club is uh, very uh, firmly against natural gas and expanding natural gas usage. Um, <clears throat> we definitely push a lot uh, towards electrification of the grid and buildings and uh, and the economy kind of at, at large, um, so auto as well. Um, so natural gas was supposed to be this right transition fuel that went from got us from coal to you know the next step uh, towards energy. Um, but of course, that's not actually how nobody thought that's what was going to happen. And of course, that's not what's happened. Um, we've just become dependent on yet another fossil fuel. Um, primarily being uh, brought about through fracking. So um, now there's kind of a big how to do on, on biogas and bioenergy. Uh, so um, that's kind of <clears throat> probably the next step, right? And that, uh, you know, transition towards, um, you know, another form of dependence, but that rather than coming from the earth uh, in terms of fracking, uh, generally comes from the digestion of unsustainable waste. Hey, Mallory, I know you had one. Yeah, I was wondering how we feel about nuclear uh, as an energy source. So that's a <clears throat> that's a really good question, actually, because there's <clears throat> there's a lot of different points of view on nuclear energy and whether it's uh, should be included in, in clean power plans and renewable energy plans and if nuclear is renewable or clean or you know what where does nuclear fall in, into play. Um, so <clears throat> I think it's a little bit complicated just because there's um, so there's the extraction and processing uh, stage of production of energy and then there's the actual like whether it be combustion or, or uh, processing or, or however you turn that extracted material into actual electricity, right? And then there's the user stage, <clears throat> right? Which could be um, a natural gas, it could be stoves or automobiles or whatever, nuclear, it's 
electricity that then is used on the end user stage. And so you have to look at like pollution in all three uh, stages. Um, so of course, like coal, right, is probably one of the worst um, just because it's uh, very dirty in extraction as is natural gas. Um, but coal, meanwhile, is very, very dirty as well when it's being burned to create steam and heat uh, to do you know, generally spin turbines to create energy. Um, and then uh, it generally powers uh, high demand uh, power sources, which tend to be uh, heavy emissions as well. And so it's kind of dirty at all three stages. Nuclear is catastrophic in the strip mining that generally comes with uranium mining. Um, it is uh, the, the process of actually creating the energy you're literally just superheating this, this material to create steam, which turns these giant turbines that can pump out hundreds of megawatts of energy. And the only emission is steam. And so in that middle part, right, there, there really is no emissions, but then you have the waste of that. The uranium isn't fully utilized in, in most uh, first generation reactors. And so um, you end up with a byproduct that you can't use that stays around for millions of years. Right, so there's your problem on, on that portion. And then um, it's pumped into the general grid, which um, could be high or low demand electricity. So, um, but there's a twist, right? So right now we're in generally generation one of nuclear reactors, which take a lot of uranium, um, have a huge, huge footprint, not just because the towers, the cooling towers that you see are massive, but also because they have to have huge buffers. You can't build anything near them in case something goes wrong. And then they have a lot of waste. They're really wasteful in terms of how much they actually utilize the fuel, the uranium uh, that, they, that they take in. Now, when you look at um, some of the generations that are just now starting to be built for the very first time, they are much, much smaller. Sometimes they can fit on like the size of like a barge. Um, and they use a lot less uranium and the process is a lot smaller. The reactions are a lot smaller. And so the, the footprint's a lot smaller and they use the waste from first generation reactors. You actually don't have to do strip mining for some of the newer generation nuclear plants. And so there is kind of this ongoing argument right within the environmental world of where does nuclear fall into play? Because it can generate you know, hundreds of megawatts of power um, in, in these fourth generation reactors in a very small space with the waste that we can't get rid of. Like we there's nothing we can do with the waste from first gen reactors, nothing. It just sits in decays for millions of years. Um, so is that technically better to, to use it to the point where it really is depleted um, and no longer really radioactive? in these new generations, or is it best just to leave things alone? Um, so it just depends on who you ask. But overall, when you see nuclear being used uh, in clean energy plans, there's a difference between a clean energy plan like New Jersey has, right? They have a 100% clean energy plan um, by 2050, whereas Delaware has a now 40% renewable energy plan by 2035. The difference is, of course, they count nuclear as part of their clean energy, but not part of renewable energy. And so um, there's a little bit of a, a nuance in the 
nomenclature as well. But yeah, right, Olivia, I, I think you were. Yeah, I had a question. What new climate policies would you individually and also the Sierra Club as a group would like to see put in place for this legislative session? I assume you mean uh, in Delaware. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, nationally, that's a really long conversation, but in Delaware, it's a little bit shorter. Um, so uh, our top priorities um, going into this year was to, um, <clears throat> we've been fighting for what's called an RPS bill for the past, I think, four years, four or five years, really, really hard. Um, so that kind of sets our goals for renewable energy for the next, you know, X number of years, uh, in this case, till 2035. Um, and so that was our top priority, because if we didn't do anything, then we would basically have no goal anymore, because the people who regulate utilities were going to freeze the goal, which means moving forward, Delmarva wouldn't have to do anything uh, in terms of renewable energy. Uh, if we didn't get that done this year in January. Um, so that was kind of the, the top priority and that, and that happened, uh, that took place. So now we're moving on to community solar because there's a huge equity issue in access to renewable energy. Um, it generally favors white wealthy communities um, and that's been true for a long time. Uh, generally, uh, heavily minority communities get crapped on, uh, have a lot of industry in them, a lot of extraction industries in them, and they generally don't have access to solar uh, because there uh, tend to be uh, older build houses that don't have the right roof structure um, and just weren't really designed for that. Um, so community solar is a way to have a project not near your house, uh, well, it could be near your house, but not on your roof. Um, and you would be able to purchase some of the energy from that panel, a group of panels that other people would also be able to purchase from. So there's no upfront cost generally. Um, you just pay a monthly kind of membership fee and you get credits on your bill. Um, so your bill credits generally lower your uh, utility usage well in excess of how much you have to pay uh, monthly to buy some of that solar energy. Um, so that's the next uh, policy priority because we really need to address who has access to solar, um, which right now is anybody who can afford like 40 grand up front, um, which most people can. Um, moving past that, uh, we're looking at how we can uh, move on offshore wind. Recently, there was a, a project in Massachusetts that actually was able to deliver offshore wind energy for less money than we pay for energy right now, um, and using mostly natural gas and nuclear. Um, so we're trying to figure out, you know, how can Delaware do a project like that to build like a massive offshore wind project that we can get it big enough where it's the power is cheap enough because the scale, um, the bigger it is, the cheaper the power because um, a lot of the costs are kind of front loaded. Um, so how can we have Delaware do what Massachusetts did? So that's kind of the next priority, but there's, that's mostly, you know, that's all energy stuff, right? So there's kind of little things in between. Uh, so we wanted to uh, ban the sale of invasive species in Delaware, um, which is a huge conservation issue. A lot of people don't realize that we've had a huge die-off in Delaware of native species, both animal and plants. 
um, over the past decade. And a lot of that is because a lot of invasive species have came and crowded out or killed food supplies uh, in the case of animals. Um, and so those species have either left Delaware or just died off and some have actually gone extinct. Um, so a huge issue uh, that people kind of hear like, oh, they want to be, you know, pretty flowers that aren't native to Delaware. Well, yeah, but it's a lot bigger than that, right? Like we're trying to save species from going extinct. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, so, and, and then there, of course, there'll be a couple other kind of conservation uh, policy priorities, but I would say those are probably have been the biggest this year. There's some electric vehicle stuff as well, but. Um, about that, I was wondering, um, was Sierra Club involved at all with the plastic bag ban that was recently imposed? And like, how do you feel about the fact that they're still using those plastic bags, just that they're thicker? I've been seeing that a lot of places and I was wondering how you, your opinion on that. Yeah, infuriated, no. Um, so we, were, we weren't involved in the, in the bag ban. Um, we, you know, we're supportive of the concept of, of banning plastic bags. It just wasn't our bill. That was um, Plastic Free Delaware, of course, uh, led that initiative. Um, but it is infuriating to go into stores, right, and see like, oh, the solution to our, you know, single-use plastic bags, these multi-use, right, which is crap. Um, nobody's probably going to reuse these bags. Um, and they're, they're just found a way to get around things as a lot of us said that they they would. So it's kind of like nobody wants to be like, oh, we told you so, but um, it's a little bit of that. But they are working on um, another bill that would uh, just completely ban, it doesn't matter the thickness, um, any, any plastic bags. So I know D Durham is just as infuriated as anybody else, um, particularly since most of the people saying I told you so are kind of saying it to her because she was kind of the face of that. Um, and she advocate, just to be clear, she advocated for a total ban period. It was the General Assembly that said, oh, we're going to carve this little loophole in here. That was not her intent. So she um, has a legislator that said they will go in and take that loophole out. So. All right. I, I wanted to uh, go back to community solar for a second. Uh, I wanted to ask, so community solar is obviously going to give us a huge boost in renewable energy sector. So would that kind of force the state to consider 50% or even higher a little bit quicker than it would if we kind of avoided doing something like, something like that? Yeah. So it's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> so there's limitations on kind of how high you can go in terms of of solar proliferation just because of how the grid has been kind of patchworked over time. And the fact that we actually have three utilities in Delaware and one of them, the, which is uh, the Delaware Electric Co-op has really old infrastructure um, and they don't really wanna pay to, they're a cooperative, right? So they have probably the lowest, not, not probably, they do have the lowest energy rates in the state. Um, part of that is they don't do as much upkeep as Delmarva does with the grid. Um, I mean, not to say they don't, like we're not gonna end up with Texas or anything, don't worry about that. But um, it's definitely not as up-to-date as Delmarva, which could handle a, a higher load. So the thing about these community solar projects, right, is that it's a lot of solar. I mean, there's bigger projects, right? But technically where we're at now to where we're going with community solar, you're going from like, you know, 
0.25 megawatts to five megawatts. So you're going from like one home, maybe most of the usage of one home to hundreds, you know, 800 to a thousand homes, right? Um, and just one project and you're doing multiple projects, but the, where you build that project, because that's a lot of power, right? Particularly in a spring, sunny spring day when it's getting like the full load, if not more than what they planned sometimes has to go into the grid at one place and then it's distributed, you know, kind of across the grid. So there's a cap on how much of that you can do, how much you can insert in a specific place. Um, so like, I don't wanna say that you're gonna see community solar like explode as much as it you could probably think about in your head. Um, one is you have about six acres for every megawatt of power. So it's a decent amount of land. Um, and the other is, you know, you have to consider how much power you're going in from solar in, in any one place. Um, but that being said, yes, they are uh, in the community solar bill, they are moving to 50% um, rather than 40%, which is great. Um, and we have one of the cleaner RPS bills, um, given that we don't include like nuclear or burning wood, right, for energy, like Virginia does. Um, so uh, we're really focused, I mean, primarily solar uh, for Delaware, the rest of the compliance is like buying power from like wind farms in PA and Ohio and places like that. Um, so, and then if we did offshore wind, right, you would have a huge percentage of our energy and then we would definitely want to accelerate right even further because that's like a, you know, five, 600 megawatts. Um, so I would say with community solar, it's definitely feasible, particularly on the solar side to accelerate the schedule that way. And that's what we're advocating for, but there's still kind of confides on, on infrastructure. Right, uh, Drew, I know your question was kind of more in that realm, so I'll let you go. Yeah, I wanted to ask if we should be prioritizing wind or solar, and if not, how do we find a happy medium between the two? Uh, when you say wind, do you mean onshore or offshore, or just in general? Just in general. Yeah, um, so in terms of like our capacity for renewable energy, um, within the borders of the state, right? So we, I mean, we operate on a grid that goes most of the way up the coast. Um, so, you know, we can buy electrons and, and renewable credits from kind of anywhere in that grid network. So that's why we buy, you know, wind power from Pennsylvania. Um, in terms of in the state of Delaware though, we really don't have any uh, consistent wind streams that stay, stay going through the state itself. But off the coast, about 12 miles, there is a, a pretty steady uh, jet stream that, that runs through there that's pretty consistent. Um, the real issue is just the cost of electricity. So bigger, so the cost is kind of goes in this order, right? Onshore wind is the cheapest, but you need a consistent jet stream, which we don't have. Utility scale solar, which you're talking, you know, hundreds of megawatts of power, somewhere between 100 and 500 megawatts. So you're talking about a lot of land. Um, that's the next cheapest. And then community solar is the next cheapest after that, um, followed by offshore wind and then rooftop solar. Um, and so we're focusing heavily on community solar right now because you can get, you know, five megawatts, which we definitely have land space for. And 
parts of Delaware do uh, do utility scale, like DMEC, uh, which is the municipal energy companies, and DEC, which is that co-op I mentioned. Um, they have like 50 and, and 100 megawatt solar panels, uh, solar fields. So we, you know, we do incentivize that. Um, the issue with offshore wind is just the cost. Yes, it's clean. Yes, there's a lot of environmental benefits, and we got to think about, you know, health impacts and and the costs associated with continuing down the road that we're on. And all of that is really great to say. But when you go into a low-income community, right, that has not only they're not going to get the jobs from those projects, right? So not really getting the economic benefit, and then like in terms of higher wages, and then you're going to raise their electric rates. It's a hard sell. Um, they already contribute, usually, generally speaking, more to electricity than than any other part of their uh, you know personal economic circumstance. Um, so increasing that load on them is a hard sell for a lot of people. Um, so it's just how do we do offshore wind in a way that's not going to jack up those people's energy rates? And that could be right that maybe there's some kind of subsidy that specifically helps low-income communities and low-income rate payers offset some of that cost of the more expensive offshore wind energy. We're trying to figure that out. Um, so we heavily incentivize solar right now because it's cheaper. It can lower people's bills. And it's something we definitely have access to. The talking point that the sun doesn't shine enough in Delaware is complete crap. Um, there's just as much sun here as there is anywhere else in the mid-Atlantic region or the Northeast for that matter. Um, and even parts below, you know, immediately below us that have massive solar insulation installations. Um, so we can definitely do that here. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. All right, I, I also wanted to uh, touch on this. I know we talked about this with Senator Hansen last week, but we kind of wanted to hear your take on it. Uh, so I know you guys are pushing like the 50-50 split between state and company projects. Uh, so she gave us a big con on that, which was once these companies kind of go out of business, there's really nobody to call. So like what what would be your retort to that? And what's, what's, your, what's your kind of reasoning behind pushing for something like that? I don't know what you mean by 50-50 state. What do you mean? So like the community solar projects uh, having like independent companies be able to do it and also having state projects be able to come into play. Gotcha. So, so they wouldn't be state projects, um, just to clarify that. Um, so counties or municipalities could form or the sustainable energy utility, which I, I guess maybe you could, maybe you could call that the state. Um, I mean, it's not a state government agency, but it's, formed by the state. So anyway, they form these authorities that kind of oversee a project that some community and community is not like a neighborhood, right? It could be a business community, faith community. It could be a neighborhood. It could just be five random people. Um, you know, they petition the government to say, hey, we want to do a community solar project and we want you guys to help us run it. Um, and so the county or the municipality would form this board that would then supposedly listen to what they have to say um, and try to create a project that would fit that need. Um, and then they could either just serve that faith community or what have you, 
or they could do like subscriptions like traditional community solar. Um, but the economic benefit, which would be the renewable credits that come with the solar would go to that authority, right? Which then supposed to go back into the community. It doesn't say it will, but it's supposed to. Um, and I wouldn't say it's kind of 50-50. The reality is no municipality has ever created a community solar project outside of Newark and Lewis um, and Dover. Um, but they're all in DMAC territories. And this wouldn't, that's the uh, municipality uh, electric companies. So they wouldn't apply in this bill. Um, so it would just be Delmarva. So the reality is that nobody's done it before. Nobody actually wants to do it, um, except for maybe the ener sustainable energy utility that I mentioned. Um, they may be able to do it. But the reality is it's probably gonna be really pretty small projects since the, the interests are gonna be you know, tighter knit like a business or faith community. So you're probably only talking maybe a megawatt or so, which means the power is probably gonna be pretty expensive and they're gonna have a hard time finding people to buy it. So I would say it's unlikely that a lot of the authority model is gonna happen. If it does, it'll probably be you know, five, six years from now maybe. Um, what we're advocating for is what every other state's done, which is just a general subscription service. So you have a solar company that creates a you know a five megawatt project, and then anywhere in Delmarva, they would find people to buy the energy from that project. Um, like I said, you would pay you know a monthly fee, and then you would get credits on your Delmarva bill, um, in excess of what you paid out. Uh, so, in terms of the business, most of the businesses that do community solar projects have been around for quite some time. Um, and they wouldn't be able to just dissolve uh, the solar field, like the, the, the plan, and just kind of leave the solar in place. Like there's regulations, right, that they have to take up the solar, return any money that's been paid for services not rendered. And then the people would be left no worse than where they started, right? They wouldn't uh, be out money or anything like that. And whoever owned the land, um, generally they own the land. Um, but if they were leasing, they would have to return the land to the, the way they found it. So there really isn't a, a big risk of companies leaving. You haven't seen that happen in, in any other state. Um, so I'm not really sure where that talking point came from, but um, yeah, so certainly wouldn't be a 50-50 mix. It would probably be predominantly what other states have done, which is subscriptions. All right, I wanted to open up the floor to some more questions, kind of community solar-based. Anybody has them? I take that as a no. Uh, and then I know Carissa had one. So what advice would you give to someone who is starting out in climate advocacy to immediate impacts? Hmm. It's really daunting to, to first be getting involved in um, any kind of policy world, uh, whether that be climate change or education or criminal justice or, or what have you. Particularly if you talk to somebody like me and I start throwing around acronyms and jargon and make it even worse. Um, but I, you know, I try, <laughs> try not to, but uh, um, 
So, I mean, the first thing you got to do is just kind of get your feet. It doesn't matter where you really start. Um, so I like the analogy of the, of man, I'm going to feel really old. So used to be like switchboard operators, right? Like back in telephone, <laughs> like tel telephones. Um, so you'd have like all these lights flashing at, at the same time, right? Or, or maybe like a conference line, right? Where you got like multiple lines coming into the phone line at the same time. You got all these lights flashing at you, right? And that's kind of what it's like getting involved in policy for the first time. You got all these lights like flashing at you at the same time, all these issues that are like, hey, pick me, pick me, pick me, right? It actually doesn't matter which light that you push first because you just came into it with all these flashing lights that were already there. You don't know what came first, what the root is, what any of them mean. It really doesn't matter which one you pick, just pick one. And it, it really doesn't matter and, and know that it really doesn't matter because anything you pick is gonna be better than not picking anything. Right. So pick one of the flashing lights. And if that feels right, then just keep going down the rabbit hole. And if it doesn't feel right, then just pick a different light. Um, so I would say, like, just whatever you're really interested in and in working on, um, you can try to find that. But in absence of that, just jump on board, like join a meeting, go to a committee meeting, um, listen in on, you know, one of the legislative committees. Um, talk to your friends and neighbors and find out what they're into. I mean, there's a lot of different avenues to get plugged in. Um, following people on social media just to see what they're doing and what they're talking about and then reaching out to them and try to figure a little bit more out about it and some background or what action you can take. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to, to do it, but really just kind of just pick a light and, and dive in. Um, I was wondering, how we can maybe be taken more seriously as a group because I know a few of us have attended some of the legislation hearings and there's definitely been a, a few times some impression that we aren't being taken seriously. How would you suggest that we go about that? I mean, so first I wouldn't say that you're not taken seriously. It's just more of an unknown. Um, so the more you show up that that paradigm is going to shift for sure. Um, just by nature of what happened. I mean, I started a political organization in Delaware with like five other people called Delaware United. And the first probably six months, like nobody knew who the hell we were, but we just kept showing up. Like we just got, like just kept popping up everywhere, right? And eventually people were like, oh my God, these guys are like, they're in it, right? And now five, six years, whatever it's been later, um, you know, pretty well-known name in leg hall and, and in certain circles. So you just keep showing up and that's going to change. But I will say that numbers make a difference too. I mean, you guys got what, 21 people here. Um, 21 people is a big group, honestly. I mean, uh, five people can change the world. 21 can do a lot. <laughs> um, so if you guys have, you know, Jack and I had a training on like Action Network where we do you know, a lot of our letter campaigns where people can you know, send letters to legislators and stuff. Um, you know, as a group, if your guys are able to do that um, and you're able to get even in one go, right, 100, 200 letters or, or something like that, I mean, you're going to get noticed very, very quickly. Um, and if you keep testifying at committees, you're going to get noticed because not a lot of people do that. Um, you're going to get noticed very, very quickly. And everybody's all about like empowering um, the next generation coming into this. And uh, you know, I'll say out the bat as somebody, I guess, that started a little bit younger than what I am now. Um, I heard that a lot, but it didn't really reflect the reality of what I was facing. And you'll probably feel that too. 
you have people that say, oh, the next generation needs to come in, right? But then they don't want to give over any control or power um, that they hold on to. And it's insanely frustrating. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what to do, but honestly, keep they're going to piss you off to no end, but keep working with them anyway. Um, and over time, right, their, their walls will break down and, and they'll kind of get to see that you're serious and that you're here and that you're going to take control one day, whether they like it or not. And they'll kind of um, back down a little bit and, and give you more leeway and, and room to work. Um, so, you know, know that I felt that too. And you're at one point you will feel that, um, but just keep pushing, like screw the haters, man. Just keep pushing. <laughs> All right, uh, so I, I'm gonna float something that we've been talking about. Uh, we, we were kind of discussing doing something legislatively to try and freeze construction of like new non-renewable fossil fuel. We haven't really nailed down the vocabulary term for it yet. What's the plausibility of getting something like that even just voted on? Like how, how, how hard is it to go about getting a sponsor for something and getting it rolling? So there's a couple, there's a couple layers to that. Um, so realistically, natural gas fired power plants are the only thing that's feasible in Delaware. Um, we have one coal generating power plant that is only running a few days out of the year, generally in peak demand, um, and it's not probably not going to renew its permit. Um, so what you may see, I don't know how many more natural gas fired power plants they'll realistically build in Delaware, um, just because the the demand's not really there. Um, but what you might see is that coal plant transitioning to a natural gas plant from coal to natural gas. It'd be a pretty easy transition. I, I would see them doing that. Um, so the, the layers would be, you're kind of coming up against land use and energy policy at the same time. Um, land use is all on the county and energy policy can be directed by the state. Um, so like we've banned incinerators in the state of Delaware. So like you could technically ban a, a practice if you can show that it has, um, you know, potential problematic public health effects like they were able to do with incinerators. Um, I said, you may be able to do that for, for natural gas. It would be tough. It, it'd be a lot easier if there was a project in the works um, which there's not. I think the only the only energy infrastructure that's likely be, to be built is um, uh, biogas and solar in Delaware, I, and then that transitioning the coal plant to a natural gas plant. Um, yeah, I don't know how. I honestly don't know how you would go about kind of combining the land use aspect of that because. If the property is zoned industrial, or or heavy industrial rather, um, that's a heavy industrial use, and they're within their rights to put whatever heavy industrial use they want to put on there, as long as it's within the confines of the land use map and the and the comprehensive plan. Um, and Kent and Sussex County have terrible, terrible land use maps and comprehensive plans, and that you would never see that in Newcastle County. It would only be Kent and Sussex. So 
I guess I would say um, getting involved whenever they do the comprehensive planning is probably the most likely way to stop it, just because you can make the comprehensive plan essentially kind of phase out any kind of future use on that issue. You could probably get state legislation to um, you know, ban the construction of new natural gas powered fire uh, fired power plants. It would definitely be an uphill climb for sure. Because that's the only energy we produce in Delaware, aside from solar. All right, uh, I, I personally, I'm kind of unfamiliar with what biogas is. I'm not sure if anybody else here is kind of iffy on that. Could you kind of explain the processes of that and kind of what that is? Sure. Well, there's a lot of different ways to go about creating it, um, but it all essentially follows the same process. Um, so again, generally it's some unsustainable practice that we don't want to get rid of. Um, like we, we generally don't move very heavily towards zero waste, unfortunately, right? So we produce refuse um, and we don't compost in the state of Delaware. Uh, we don't compost municipal waste. We used to, um, but the smell was so horrible uh, that um, every compost plant that got put up got taken down all within probably about five years of one another uh, because the smell just traveled <laughs> exponentially into the neighborhoods and they just couldn't take it. Um, so we don't do a lot of composting and we have a huge chicken uh, issue in Delaware. Um, it's one of our main economic drivers, the poultry industry, and they're super unsustainable. Um, factory farming is very unsustainable. Um, you end up with a lot of poultry guts and nasty stuff and you end up with a lot of chicken poop. Um, so Generally, what we do with that now is we just spread it on fields and the chicken guts and stuff smell really bad when you do that because um, they generally do it in the summer and you can imagine how bad that would be. Um, and then chicken poop is actually one of our biggest contributors to nitrate pollution, which can cause a lot of birth defects and, and other bad issues. Um, so uh, I know it was like a presentation on like making sure we scoop dog poop, which we should, definitely should. Um, but chicken poop is probably the biggest poop problem that we have right now. Um, so what we do with these unsustainable practices is we take whatever that waste is, whatever the waste stream is, and we put it into a big vat, right? Like a big barrel, all enclosed, no oxygen. And we mix it with water and some microbes and the microbes, you know, and constantly turn it and the microbes digest it. And it's anaerobic digestion, right? Digestion without oxygen. And so that produces gas, which you capture, and then take out any impurities like um, carbon dioxide and, and stuff like that that comes with breaking down material. And you take the rest of it and you do whatever it is that you want to do with it. So most of the time it you know goes into the natural gas line. There's some facilities that will actually just on site take it and they won't even refine it. They just throw it right into a burner um, and it superheats generally uh, rods or some material that creates steam and turns a turbine. Um, so biogas, generally speaking, is usually from anaerobic digestion. So there's a facility right. down in Sussex that is being proposed to do that, um, two of them actually. All right, I, I know this is like a very hot topic right now. I just wanted to get your take on it and kind of what that means for us here at home. Uh, so obviously Texas is dealing with a lot of like blackouts right now that have been immediately blamed on renewable energy. But then when we're kind of stepping back and looking at it, it's not. 
So do you think there's actually like a market for that kind of argument here where people just immediately point the blame to that? And what, how do we overcome that kind of thinking? Yeah, so Caesar Rodney Institute's already trying to do that. So you'll find that they're like the main, you know, argumentative uh, group against renewable energy of basically any any kind. Um, it was surprising actually that they were seemingly in favor of utility-owned community solar, um, which uh, the electric co-op does and the municipality electric companies do. But Delmarva is not allowed to own energy generation. So they could never own a solar field, right? Which is generally how you get those really big ones, those you know, 100, 500 megawatt ones. Um, but they, we can't do that. Um, I mean, we could change that, but right now we can't do that. So, uh, but they were like, with the RPS, Caesar Rodney Institute was already like way out in front saying, oh my God, this is gonna cause blackouts, right? And um, they shared some article, and this is what cracks me up about Caesar Rodney. If you ever like sign up for the emails just for the gaff, but um, like check their sources and like nine times out of 10, their sources contradict what they're trying to say. And so the example in this one, you know, they shared this article saying that with PJM, which is our, you know, the grid that is in, in the mid, mid, uh, mid-Atlantic region to the upper East Coast, um, if we do more than 30% RPS or renewable energy on the grid, uh, that we're going to have rolling blackouts like California, right? This is before Texas. Um, so California was having a, a similar issue. Um, and but then you look at the article and the article specifically says at 30%, we will have no reliability issues. It'll actually be more reliable and cheaper to run um, and more dependent. Uh, but at over 30%, we didn't look at it. We have no idea what, what would happen at over 30%. But nowhere in it did it say at 30% or higher, we're going to have all, you know rolling blackouts. But that's like they literally said that and then quoted this article. And then, but most people aren't going to read the articles, right? They're just going to say, oh my God, they cited an article. It must be true um, when the article says the exact opposite. So um, there already are people that, that try to make that argument here in Delaware. It gets pushed back pretty easily because it's just not true. Um, there, yeah, there's infrastructure issues, right? The more uh, renewable energy you put in because it's intermittent, right? Until we get really good battery storage that's not going to kill the planet too. Um, you know, it is inter intermittent power, so you have to handle when you get a high surge, and then when you get you know a smaller amount of energy, and we got to deal with that. But we're getting more and better technology every year on how to deal with that. Uh, and technically we could put lithium based batteries in you know, the gigawatt capacity and, and deal with it now, but um, we really, you know, we got to think about that uh, lithium and, and dioxin mining and, and things of that nature can really be detrimental, um, particularly to third world countries. So, um, but we're getting better sodium ion batteries and, and better alternatives, um, gravity fed uh, battery systems, uh, storage systems that um, are really promising. So I would say uh, just cite the facts that that's just completely inaccurate and, and you'll do a pretty good job, you know, beating that argument down. Yeah, the wind uh, in Texas actually was helping make this not as bad as it could have been. The wind turbines that stayed online were actually producing over capacity than what they had planned for. And so it was actually offsetting some of the bad. 
it was ruptured natural gas lines and the fact that the refineries had to shut down and like nuclear had to be turned off like it was basically everything but the wind yeah there were a couple frozen turbines but they weren't even depending on those and the ones they were depending on were producing over what they were thinking so yeah it was terrible and i have friends that you know I, they drive me absolutely nuts but you know they they're a decent human being and I got a decent heart and um but they're always coming at me like oh you know we, we rely on solar and wind and, and a cold snap or no wind comes through right then you're going to be begging for coal and nuclear and then I, so i shot them the you know the, the uh, news sources that were like oh nuclear shut down too <laughs> and that's good to hear you know it's it was uh uh, it was it was kind of frightening to see everyone immediately jump to that, and I, I mean it was kind of expected though. Uh, anybody else have any more questions? All right, I, I I think we're good. Right on, yeah. So, I mean, if anybody has any questions um, that you you know come to you later, I'll put my email in the chat. Um, you can always reach out to me. No, nope, that's not the email. There we go. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you can always, you know, shoot me an email, ask me any questions uh, that you have, particularly around energy policy. I, I definitely am relatively comfortable in that area. If it's on land use, I'll probably direct you over to Sherry because she worked in land use for like a decade. Um, but uh, on on the energy side of things, um, definitely feel free to reach out or organizing if you need you know, tips or questions on, you know, methods of organizing. Been doing it for quite some time. So happy to uh, help. And Jack and I did a training on Action Network. So if any other groups you guys might be in want to work on that after you, you guys talk about it, um, hit me up. Let me know. All right. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is really helpful. Anytime. Yeah.